So over the, just these next two Sundays, we're actually continuing on uh, in the early chapters of both Matthew and Luke's Gospel, looking at the, the childhood of Jesus as a continuation of uh, the passages that we've looked at leading up to Christmas. And uh, today we're in Matthew chapter 2, so please um, read along with me. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared and he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. That was just some revision to remind us of uh, what we looked at two weeks ago in our Christmas service. Let's continue. Now when they had departed... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfil what the Lord has spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son." Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. More than any other Gospel writer, Matthew makes reference to prophecy being fulfilled by Jesus. He has uh, around 20 direct references in his Gospel and many more allusions. Uh, Three of these references are in this morning's passage. This was to fulfil what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, verse 15. Verse 17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Verse 23, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. Matthew's keen to show his readers, who were probably mainly Jewish, 
that their own scriptures, the Old Testament, are full of promises of the coming Messiah. Now, it's important that we have in our minds a right understanding of biblical prophecy and its fulfilments. It may be that we think about biblical prophecy in the same way we think about people like Nostradamus. Nostradamus was a 16th century French astrologer who claimed the ability to see the future based on the movements of the planets. According to a a recent news article that I read on the internet where everything is true, some of his predictions for 2023 include a setback in the the plan to go to Mars, World War III, a new Pope. Now, some will say, okay, well, that was fulfilled. The old Pope died last night, if you hadn't heard. Extreme global warming and the new world order. Uh, People claim he also apparently predicted for 2022 the death of Korean dictator Kim Jong-un, a war in France and an asteroid strike. So that gives us about 11 hours for those things to happen before every part of the world has entered into 2023. Well, biblical prophecy is different to that kind of horoscope predictions in three major ways. Firstly, as you know, if you've ever read the horoscope in the paper, they're very vague. You can interpret them any way you choose. And Nostradamus' prophecies are even more vague, even more cryptic. On the other hand, biblical prophecies are very clear and very specific, as we saw in today's reading. The Messiah's birthplace is specified as the town, Bethlehem, very specific and clear. Secondly, biblical prophecies aren't merely a seer looking through a time warp into the future, as if all that happens in the world is kind of this impersonal uh, forces of cause and effect. When the prophets spoke, God was speaking through them, telling Israel not just what will happen in the future, but what he will do. Biblical prophecy is a revelation, it's an unveiling of God's sovereign plans and decrees. He doesn't merely speak about things, he causes things to happen as he speaks. He did that at creation. He caused darkness to shine out of light by his word. And things that weren't came to be. He does the same in human history. Things come to pass as he speaks forth, as he decrees and as he makes them come to pass. So thinking again about the prophecy about Bethlehem, why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Not just because it happened that way and God knew about it, but because he said it would be the case and because 
he believes what he says and he always does what he says, he made sure it happened just as he had said. We should think of biblical prophecy not so much as prediction but as promise. God speaks and he determines the course, the course of events because when he speaks he never rests a single second until he has completed what he says he will do. I'm sure you've heard the phrase a self-fulfilling prophecy describing the way in which a prediction can come true or partly true because I believe it so much that I change my behaviour and that makes it come true. Well, biblical prophecy is in a sense self-fulfilling prophecy. Not because we believe it, but because God believes everything he says and his actions shape the course of events to make sure that what he says actually comes to pass. Thirdly, biblical prophecies have our relationship with God at their heart. If Nostradamus's predictions appear to come true, we're still left with the question of well, why did it happen and how am I now to live in light of that? It doesn't deepen our relationship or love for Nostradamus or for the planets or grow our confidence that this world and our lives have meaning and purpose. Biblical prophecy, on the other hand, is designed to increase our faith in God, to grow in our love for him, to have a desire to do his will with a confidence that our times are in his hands. So when we see fulfilled prophecy in the Bible, we shouldn't so much think, that's amazing, that must be more than mere coincidence, we should think that, but we should more so be thinking, that's amazing, see how faithful my God is to what he promised. If we see him being faithful in the grand schemes of history, overseeing the details of the big things, like the birth of his own son, overseeing the courses of nations and empires, well, how much more can we trust his sovereign care of us in even the little things? Matthew began his Gospel with the words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He wants us to remember two big promises in the Bible and to see, as he then tells the story of Jesus' life, how God has faithfully kept them. The first, chronologically, not in the verse, but the first chronologically is the promise to Abraham to bless all the nations of the world through his offspring. And the second was the promise to David to raise up one of his sons to sit on the throne and to rule God's people forever. So, Matthew then goes on and gives a genealogy of Jesus and he traces his forebears back to David and then back to Abraham. He says Jesus is the true Israelite 
and he is the true Davidic king. Now if we follow the biblical stories that come out of those promises, we see something very interesting. Abraham's offspring ended up in Egypt as slaves, in no position to be a blessing to all the nations of the world until they were finally rescued by God in the Exodus 400 years later. David, David's descendants ended up in exile in Babylon, cut off from the throne of Israel until they were allowed to return 70 years later. Seems that the way that God works is he gives a promise and then he engineers the course of events so that the fulfilment of that promise seems to be an absolute impossibility, completely unachievable by any human being. So that when the promise is fulfilled, people can only say, what is impossible with man is possible with God and he has done it. Now at the time of Jesus then, the Jews were still waiting to see the complete fulfilment of these promises. Sure, they were a great and numerous people. Some lived in the promised land, but many were scattered across the known world, as far west as Egypt and as far east as Babylon and Persia. And they were ruled over not by a descendant of David, but by the Romans and by King Herod, who wasn't even an ethnic Jew, let alone a descendant of David. So what Matthew is doing in his opening chapters of his Gospel is showing us how these two incomplete yet to be fulfilled promises find their complete fulfilment in Jesus. So as we'll see in a moment, he quotes a prophecy about the Exodus and then a prophecy about the return from the exile, showing us that Jesus brings about the real and final Exodus from slavery and the real and final return from exile. So, firstly, he talks about this, uh, the flight to Egypt. This part of the story echoes the Exodus, the story of Exodus, with Moses being hidden from Pharaoh who was trying to kill the Israelite boys. The Lord saved Moses from an evil king and raised him up to be the deliverer of his people. Now Matthew says that this fulfils the prophecy which comes from Hosea 11 verse 1. When Israel was a child I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son. And see how it continues. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. See, Jesus isn't only the true and better Moses, he's the true and better Israel. His similarity to Moses highlights the stark difference to Israel. Israel was 
the disobedient son, even though he had been rescued and loved, he still kept sacrificing to the Baals. No matter how God was faithful, how he faithfully remained uh, loving them, they persisted in their their rebellion and idolatry. Jesus, on the other hand, is the obedient son. He becomes for Israel everything that they failed to be. So when he is called out of Egypt, he will remain faithful to his father and to his commands. Then we come to the slaughter of the children by Herod. And this part of the story echoes the exile and the return. Ancient warfare was much more brutal than modern warfare. Today we have things like the Geneva Conventions which protect civilians and monitor the treatment of prisoners. In the ancient world no such treaties existed. Armies would mercilessly slaughter civilians, men, women, children, animals. Now we can't hide the fact that in the Bible we see the Lord allowing, even commanding the armies of Israel to take that approach when they went into the promised land and answering the question of how how can God be justified in doing this is for another time and place. But needless to say, that was Israel's experience when they were invaded by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Absolute, brutal, wholesale slaughter. And ancient kings weren't constrained by international conventions on human rights. They had absolute power. They, they would choose to eliminate people and populations just because they saw them as a threat to their power. And Herod was this kind of king. He had already assassinated his brother-in-law, then his wife's grandmother, then his wife, then his mother-in-law, and three of his own sons. A man who was able to do that would have had no trouble in his conscience in ordering the execution of these children whom he'd never met. Now Matthew tells us that this is a prophecy that was fulfilled, uh, spoken by the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it to the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine and the oil and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. And then the passage Matthew quotes, thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. And he goes on, Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, 
and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. See how this report of Rachel weeping for her children is sandwiched between words of hope, promises of restoration and return and a future for the children. This prophecy isn't so much foretelling a disaster as it is foretelling the Lord's mercy in the midst of a disaster. It's a call to the people to actually put their grief behind them finally and to look forward to what the Lord will do in restoring their fortunes and ensuring the future of the next generation. So still standing in the shoes of Israel, Jesus will reenact not just the exodus from Egypt, but the return from exile in Babylon. The promises given to Israel on those two occasions will be kept in him. But even better, the promise to Abraham about blessing all nations and to David about establishing his throne forever will also be completed in Jesus, who is the offspring of Abraham and the son of David. Then he comes uh, in Matthew's Gospel to the return to Nazareth, verses 19 to 23. Now, a few weeks ago I mentioned this passage and I pointed out that the phrase, he shall be called a Nazarene, isn't found anywhere in the Old Testament. And Matthew's wording here is a little bit different to the way he does it in other passages. Here he says, the prophets, rather than the prophet. He's referring to more than one prophet. As I said a few weeks ago, Nazareth sounds like the Hebrew word nazer, which means branch. That's a term applied to the Messiah by a number of the prophets, but notably Isaiah in Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch, that's the word nazer, from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Matthew may have been thinking of this passage along with others, but he's really, he's, he's doing a play on words. Even the name of the town in which Jesus grew up points us to his identity as the branch, the fulfiller of all of God's promises. We're going to continue through this prophecy in Isaiah 11, even though it's, it's, it's fairly long, because this prophecy also brings together all of the threads of God's redemptive work throughout history. So the first part points to Jesus' role as the king in the line of David. Then it broadens out to encompass all of creation. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain 
for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There's a picture of the new creation with humanity and the rest of all of God's creatures living in perfect harmony. Maybe this is one reason the angels appeared to the shepherds. A shepherd's caring relationship with his sheep is a foretaste of what it will be like when the the fear and dread of human beings is removed from the animal kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. When someone say, will my dog be in heaven? Say, well, I don't know if your dog will, but there will be dogs because God made them and they're good. Then the prophecy zooms back in to the Messiah again and his role in bringing about the blessings of Abraham. In that day, the root of Jesse, the branch, the Messiah, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, the nations, of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnants that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. That last verse there is Ephraim is the northern kingdom, Judah is the southern kingdom. He's talking about the reunification of God's people. That happens when the gospel went to the Samaritans. The Samaritans believed and were made one again with their Jewish brothers and sisters. But here's the renewed promise to Abraham, signified by the visit of the Gentile wise men as people from all nations are gathered in to form one people with Jesus reigning as head over all. So on one level, uh, he shall be called a Nazarene, means he came from the town of Nazareth, the disreputable region of Galilee, a citizen of an an obscure, unimportant town, without the aura of majesty that would have come if he'd been known as Jesus of Bethlehem, the city of David. But on another level, he shall be called a Nazarene, means he's the promised branch. He is great David's greatest son who's come to bring the kingdom of God on earth and as the crucified risen Lord he is now ruling with all authority in heaven and earth. It means he is at work even now reconciling all things in creation and moving us towards the goal of all things being made new with humanity and the whole created order back in harmony with one another. It means that he's now in the work of gathering his people for whom he died out of every nation, people, tribe and tongue, forming them into his bride, the church, and purifying us so that we will be fit to reign with him forever. The world has already forgotten Christmas. It came and went was overshadowed by the Boxing Day sales and the New Year's celebrations, always much bigger than Christmas celebrations. 
Retail stores and supermarkets are already planning their next round of marketing opportunities. Before long we'll see hot cross buns and Easter eggs in the stores. And in a week or so, everything will just feel like it has been last year. The world will feel no different to what it was before this annual festival. But it's not a mere annual festival, is it? The incarnation of the Son of God has changed the world and humanity forever. The same Jesus who slept in a manger, who walked the streets of Galilee and Judea, who was crucified on a Roman cross, is now seated at the right hand of the Father in our flesh and bones, securing our future and the future of creation. One day we'll see him in all his glory, both the glory of his eternal majesty as God the Son and the glory of his risen, glorified humanity in which we'll share when he speaks and he raises the dead, judges the living and the dead and makes things new. When the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. The old cliche, every day is Christmas Day, should be true for us who know all this. The way we live each day should be defined by the hope that comes from promises fulfilled in Jesus and the certainty that the Father who faithfully kept his promises then will continue to be faithful to us, his people, today. So as you step into this new year, whatever it holds for you, remember his faithfulness. And that's not merely good advice, it's vital. Because while you may have some idea of what this year holds for you, with various plans, expectations, you really have no idea what's going to happen because you cannot see the future, let alone control it. We need to lay hold of the certainty that comes from knowing the Father who not only knows the future but is just as much shaping it in his loving hands as he was shaping the events that led up to the birth of his son. So will you start this new year trusting in him? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the certainty that we have as we read your word, as we hear your promises spoken long, long ago and as we see those promises come to pass in their fullness and completion in Jesus. We thank you that in those events and in everything that Jesus did and said, we see your faithfulness shining through to us. Give us the faith, Father, that we need to trust in Jesus as our only Saviour and Lord and the faith that we need to trust you and the work of your Spirit in us as you lead us into a future that we don't know, Father, but you know and it's in your hands. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing hymn, uh, a hymn that is, uh, I guess it's an anthem where we are stating our, our allegiance to our King, our Lord Jesus Christ and entrusting our lives to him.
uh, for the future.